Wayabu and welcome to the Take It Black podcast. My guests for this theme, which is on country and the colony, are Dr. Fiona Foley and Nathan Bird, aka Birds, who I had the pleasure of talking with on a podcast for the ABC recently called Stop Everything. Hi, guys. How you doing? Hi, Jack. Hey. Good. Good, yeah. Now, you're both bachelor people. That's right. Yeah. That's pretty much what I want to talk about today, actually, is, well, firstly, I've never been up to Butchler uh, country. Um, I, I know that it's it's a beautiful spot. Fiona, you've got a close connection with it, reading your latest work, uh, Biting the Clouds. Can you tell us a little bit about country up there? What makes it special? Gurry is the largest sand island in the world. There are about 44 freshwater lakes on the island and in the middle is this magnificent rainforest um, which keeps cool all year round and then there are uh, different sub-micro ecosystems and there are huge sand blows on the island on the eastern side and all of those sand blows have specific names so... I'm familiar with some of them, like Knife Blade, um, growing up a little bit on country um, at different times and spending holidays there. Just a beautiful place, full of serenity, beautiful nature, and uh, it's a photographer's dream, really. Nathan, would I be right in saying you didn't get the opportunity to grow up on country? Uh, Everything I've read about your bio, it's you grew up in the NT. Have you yeah. had a chance to get back to Gary? Um, not the island itself since I was a kid, but, um, yeah, like mainland um, and Harvey Bay area um, is kind of, yeah, um, been back there to visit family and stuff, yeah. But, yeah, grew up in Catherine in the Northern Territory. Um, now, just to get our listeners across, you've both produced some recent work. Uh, when I say recent, you know, it's, it's released recently, but a long time in the process of, of producing it. Um, and it's about the impact of colonization, I guess, on country. Um, first of all, we'll just go to you, Fiona, around your book. Um, now, it's called Biting the Clouds, and it is uh, a bachelor perspective on the Aboriginal's protection and restriction of the sale of Opium Act, 1897. Now, it also in, you, includes a lot of your fine artwork um, through photographs uh, of films, uh, photographs themselves, stills, uh, art installations and other things, and they all add an extra sort of layer of, of depth or meaning um, to the actual written word. Uh, so it's, it's a great book. Um, first of all, I just want to ask you, what is that act? Can you give a bit of a description to take it back, listeners, around the impact of that particular act? Uh, if I backtrack, really um, people have to understand um, that opium was legal in the state of Queensland up until the legislation was introduced in 1897 and there were many races partaking in using opium in various ways. So the state government issued licences to the lay European or Chinese in the district 
and then Aboriginal people were being um, manipulated in another way where they were being given opium, opium ash that had already been smoked and they were mixing it with water and drinking that, which also gave a high. Why they were giving it to Aboriginal people across the state was to addict them as a free labour force and the ash was in lieu of any financial payment. So this was a widespread practice. But unfortunately today uh, most Queenslanders are unaware of this history in relation to that piece of legislation which has that really long title, the Aboriginal's Protection and Restriction of the Sale of Opium Act. So when I first um, looked into this piece of legislation, I was intrigued by two words, opium and Aboriginals, and what those two words had to do with one another. What was the relationship? And that sparked my intrigue to understand how was the word opium in this piece of legislation because I had never heard of opium being um, so prevalent in the colony. So that's where it really began. And with the legislation, there were 33 clauses that governed Aboriginal people's lives on a daily basis. Now, it gave the minister, was it the minister or the protector, uh, chief protector? He gave them authority over Aboriginal lives just with a stroke of a pen. Is that right? So, yeah, there were two protectors in Queensland when they set up the legislation and the person in the south was Archibald Meston. He was a southern protector and he had his first experiment was on Fraser Island and when you examine his life in a little bit more detail, he was a subscriber to eugenics theories coming out of London which meant the purity of the race. So he was very anti-intermarriages between um, Aboriginals and Europeans or Aboriginals and Chinese, and so he never um, sanctioned any of those intermarriages during his uh, time as the protector of Aboriginals. And he also um, subscribed to isolating Aboriginal people on either islands or remote parts of the East Coast so he selected Fraser Island on the West Coast to set up the first experiment and he took the first people he took, there were 51 bachelor men, men, women and children, and then later on he brought 19 different other language groups from across the whole of the state to the island and dumped them in one place and it was atrocious conditions that they were there under appalling food, no medicines, um, high rate of um, uh, mosquito-carrying um, diseases that would infect people. And this is one of these hidden histories in Queensland that is not taught in our schools or universities and it's just um, crying out that we understand this history a lot better than we actually do. And it wasn't the only act, was it? Uh, there was, I just had a quick look uh, before jumping on to record this episode. Um, the Industrial and Reformatory Schools Act, um, haven't got a year on that one, but that was the one that uh, on ground, well, separated kids from families, sent them off to reform schools, um, industrial schools on the grounds of neglect, um, but yeah. neglect was just being Aboriginal. 
Yes, so that was prior, I believe, to this particular legislation. Yeah. You know, it's also, you know, a way to corral people and, you know, direct them towards being wards of the state. Um, And there was ones that followed, which um, Aboriginal uh, Preservation and Protection Act 1939, which uh, replaced the Aboriginal Protection and Restriction of the Sale of Opium Act, um, came in tandem with the Torres Strait Islanders Act, and they gave even more power to the protector, chief protector, than uh, the Aboriginal Protection and Restriction of the Sale of Opium Act. Is that right? Yeah, well, it's had various forms, this particular legislation, and from what I've heard, it really um, ran up until the 1970s when they had the last removal of an Aboriginal person and removed him to Palm Island. So it's had a long history and variations on that um, 1897 legislation. So it's been around for a long time. For our younger listeners, our millennial listeners, um, when you hear, and I've grown up hearing it uh, from people probably just a, a generation older than me, when they say, I grew up with the Act, is this what they're talking about? Yes, it is. And so it's um, comprehending um, how it was used against um, individuals, uh, you know, the isolation that they were taken, carted off to uh, missions, let's just say like Schoberg Mission. And then when you were reading um, people's oral histories from Sherberg Mission, the isolation even within that um, one locale where uh, daughters were taken away from their mothers or sons were taken away from their mothers and put in separate dormitories and you're just growing up with other children and how cruel that is and, you know, the crying at night of these children being taken from their mothers just horrendous. It's just, um, you know, Ruth Hegarty writes about this and reading her publication titled Is That You, Ruthie? I mean, it just brought tears to my eyes. And so, yeah, people have this in their living memories. Take it black. Let's stay at Sherberg Mission for a while. That uh, was one at one stage. Uh, so the early to mid part of last century was one of the worst sort of locales for well, for, for Aboriginal people's experience, the aspect of their life was governed and uh, at one point the death rates were exceeding the birth rates in that spot and essentially it was a prison farm from my understanding. Um, now, look, just to jump back a, a few steps, I guess, like, uh, 120 or so years, um, Nathan, your track, your most recent track, Baggy La Baggy Lambargan um, produced for the documentary Looky Looky Here Cookie. Can you just give readers an idea of what that track is about? Yeah, um, I guess in short, um, I was approached by the director Stephen McGregor, of, um, who directed Looky Looky Here Comes Cookie, and uh, he asked if I could write a song from a young warrior's perspective. Um, anticipating invasion and the arrival of um, Captain Cook and also sort of, uh, you know, inspired by um, a story of bachelor people witnessing 
um, Captain Cook sail past um, the island. And, um, and yeah, so it's really just about sort of trying to capture the mindset and the energy of a young warrior, you know, anticipating that. And uh, features my cousin, Fred Leone, who, um, who sings on that. And um, that's actually what the song is named after, is the song that he's actually come up with a few years prior called Buggy Lombargan, which um, translates to Fighting Boomerang. Yeah. And it's it's about the warrior on the beach watching the endeavour come past that that uh, that spot, the yeah. headland up there in the beach, and I think the, uh, the boat, the ship, endeavour tacked in a little bit into the bay. Um, and there is a oral history uh, of from the perspective of a bunch of the people watching that that's from that era. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So there's um, – yeah, a story, I guess, that's been passed down and one that Fred um, also told me is, yeah, a story of them witnessing him sailing past and actually trying to warn him that he's about to hit a big sandbar or a big, bit of, you know, um, and try, thinking that, you know, trying to tell him that he's going the wrong way. Um, but, yeah, and then also being very kind of, I guess, like cautious and um it being, you know, the first time um, they're seeing like white fellows are Europeans, and yeah, and the, and the song really trying to tap into, yeah, like the idea of like first contact and and seeing yeah. that for the first time, yeah, yeah. Well, it's one of the few um, sort of histories that we have uh, from our perspective, looking from shore at this strange looking cloud floating past, you know. Um, yeah. I've got some of the lyrics there for that oral history, which I'll just read for listeners because I find them interesting because um, they're relating the behavior of the ship back to, yeah. you know, things that, you know, they observe in the everyday life and it adds a lot more to uh, the whole scenario. Um, it goes, the strangers are traveling with the cloud, which would be presumably the white sails. Uh and it has a fire inside, must be a bad spirit. Um, from my reading on the Endeavour, they had small fires plus uh, a, a smoke trail that would that would follow the ship. Um, they say it's stupid. It's going directly to the serpent place. This is the truth I bring. It's breathing smoke from its ass. I think that was my own poetic license to put that bit in there. Uh, <laughs> They must be sorcerers. Uh, it's coming and going like a sand crab, which would be the tacking to and fro. And why did the sea bring them here? So is that song something that was well known through community uh, when you were growing up, Fiona? It's not well known, but it's been rediscovered um, culturally. And so in addition to the film that, uh, Nathan was involved with last year. I also created a film about that song and re and recreated it in um, our Bachelor language. And so the film that I produced last year was called Out of the Sea Like Cloud. All right. James Cook did sail past um, our island and he named three locations in Bachelor country and they are Indian Head, Breaksea Spit and Sandy Cape. And what's so important about Indian Head in Butchler language, we call it 
Takiwuru and Aboriginal people on south of us, our neighbours, had been watching the Endeavour sail up the coast for days, three or four days, and by the time it got to Butchler country, um, there, there were a, around 2,000 Butchler people amassed on top of Takiwuru, and he named that headland Indian Head um, because he and Joseph Banks were trying to understand this new race of humans. Were they Indians or were they Negroes? So they were having this conversation up the East Coast and decided that because Aboriginal people's hair texture was lank like the English, that they must be Indians. So that's how it got the name Indian Head was in relation to naming us as a new race. So that's, from my perspective, the first point of racialization in the country related to Aboriginal people. And um, I try to um, write a little bit about that in the publication and also um, bring that prominence together in the short film that I made last year. My country as well, down Birupai Way, uh, we've got an Indian head as well from Cook sailing past. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. <laughs> Same sort of thing. He spotted my forebears on the side of the, the, the promontory, the headland there, yeah. uh, making some, some tools and stuff and just watching him go past. Wow. So that would have, um, the same sort of thing, there would have been communications by fire right yeah. up the coast that let, you know, mob know. They would have wandered down yeah. there just to have a look at the, the cloud. Yeah, um, yeah. But and it's that's interesting. What Sorry. Yeah, that's that's what they thought of that endeavor. They used the metaphor cloud for it. Yeah. Well, it would have looked like it. Mm. Um, there's that. Uh, there's a well. There's a number of books, but uh, the one that comes to mind is that Doctor Waretti's Medicine for Enduring the End of the World, which was written by Madhuru Colin Johnson. Um, problematic in itself, but his description as a writer of of the ships coming into Tasmania at the time. There's a lot of that cloud imagery around it, which, yeah. of course, it would look like that to anyone that, you know, had yeah. not seen those things. But other descriptions, um, and to come back to the endeavour, was that uh, Cook, Banks and others on board had only really had face-to-face -face contact um, or, you know, on, uh, on land contact uh, in Botany, uh, in, the, in the harbour there. They never really bothered to stop and have a chat or catch up with mob or ask permission to, you know, uh, go through our waters or fish or take other uh, stores on board until they crashed into that reef, Nathan, further up the coast uh, where Cooktown presently sits. Now, just to pretty much stir you both up, did you get on board with Scott Morrison's uh, recreation in air hooks of the Cook circumnavigation of Australia? Was that something you were looking forward to this year before COVID knocked it over? No. Yeah, short answer. <laughs> never really seemed to be accepted by mob, did it? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, yeah, I've got to say that uh, although I was looking forward to some of the protests, and I think there was one uh, that was 
um, you know, chalked up for Cooktown. I wanted to see the reception that it received, but um, yeah, I, I wasn't too upset when and that got postponed indefinitely. Um, oh, thank goodness it never unfolded in its um, full glory, I guess, due to yeah. COVID. And it just seems like a weird idea from a man that has a trophy on his shelf saying, we turn these back, you know, a little boat trophy. Yeah. Here he is embracing one that brought all sorts of uh, illness and, and other impacts to our peoples. Yeah. Now, um, I guess I want to get across to an idea, Fiona, that you explore in a lot of your work and pretty much when I think of this word, I think of your work, and that is dispersals. And it's one of the benign type words that have been applied to, you know, the experience that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have had with the colony and colonization. Um, but just it's one of those soft words that is in itself a bit like a cloud. It's soft, and fluffy. Um, like the word settlement itself. Um, now, the reason I think of uh, you when I hear this word dispersals um, is because of your work, and I've written about it before as well, um, In it was a 2005 work called Witnessing to Silence. Uh, perhaps you're better to tell our listeners about that installation. Yeah. Uh, or sculpture. Yeah, it's a public artwork on Roma Street and it was a process from where to go that took two years. So I wanted to do a work that was really meaningful because it was right outside the Brisbane Magistrates Court and it's an opportunity I knew I'd never get again in my life, but I wanted to speak with some power and address the first injustice um, that happened in Queensland principally. And so... Unbeknownst to the commissioning body, I employed a researcher to find out for me all the public um, massacres, all the recordings of massacres in the state of Queensland, and she came up with a list of 94 sites and I wanted those engraved into the pavement. And the um, secrecy had to be around that because if the commissioning body got wind, it would never have gone ahead. So once the work was installed, um, I revealed the information uh, very public, publicly through a large article in The Australian in early 2005 that this work was really about massacre sites. It wasn't about um, fire and floods as I had to couch it in that sort of terminology when we were doing the um, um, fabrication process and the install. So... Um, that broke in the Australian and um, people um, thought um, <laughs> probably very differently about me after that, that yeah. I had operated through stealth using the state government's funds to um, talk about a history that's not openly acknowledged in Australia. It's starting to be acknowledged a little bit. And uh, At that time, though, it wasn't. No. We, we didn't have the massacre map. We... No. Although, you know, blackfellas knew these were uh, these histories amongst ourselves. Yeah. They were really contested or, yeah, um, it was white people took offence to us bringing it up pretty much, didn't they? 
That's right. And there were those history wars where you couldn't discuss this. Um, and it was pretty much if you were a professional historian, it was at your own peril. Or an academic, Aboriginal academic, you know, it was like hotly contested and it brought a lot of anxiety and hurt to people's, um, you know, lives and their careers. The elements that of the sculpture slash installation public art piece um, that are really striking are that um, I'm trying to give a visual here. There's two white granite rings um, and they encircle uh, both of those rings encircle different things. One is there's a tall stand of visit brass lotus flowers. Um, but the other uh, is these kind of columns that are made out of steel uh, with glass panels or glass uh, vessels in them. And within those vessels, uh, there's water and ash. Now, what is the significance or what does that water and ash represent? I wanted two lots of symbolism and they both had to be vertical and one had to ha um, have a water element and the other had to have an ash fire element. And really those two works are metaphors for how once the massacres had taken place, how did the colonialists get rid of the evidence? And usually it was through forms of burning the bodies or dumping the bodies in water courses. And so I wanted that water ash element to signify um, this is how um, this evidence right across Australia, really, not just in Queensland, was a, a modus operandi for colonialists to dispose of Aboriginal bodies in that way. Well, you say dispose, but I still see this word dispersal. Yeah. Now, you've done other work around the word dispersal, um, including the word itself in large uh, relief, another installation slash sculpture, um, and there were elements within that, like the, the D uh, was peppered with uh, fire cartridges and stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's just I'm really kind of hooked on this idea of dispersal and how it filters through everything. So from... Well, you're correct, Jack. It's a, it's a softening of the harshness of the word massacre. So it's in the government reports that were written, they used the word dispersal or dispersed, um, and it's a real softening of the language so that there was no uh, comeback, you know, down the track for reparations from Aboriginal uh, nations that, you know... The, the state had massacred, killed my family, my clan. So it really was a, um, a clever way to disguise really what was taking place in the regions right across Australia. And, you know, this history is so brutal that people don't like to talk about it. So there's this mass silence by the population uh, trying to forget, trying not to come to terms with historically what took place here. So, you know, we're moving into this period now where there's, um, you know, the terminology is truth-telling, but Aboriginal people have been telling this truth for a very, very long time and it's in our DNA, it's who we are and we have been speaking this truth 
for 250 years. It's nothing new to us. Yeah, and we've encountered walls of silence. Yeah. Uh, which makes it, you know, whether you support uh, the Uluru Statement and, and the different elements that are in it or not, um, when we uh, these sorts of self-determined ideas are put forward to government and rejected, the reason that we get a little bit upset is that that reiterates the degree of denial on you know the ex our experiences, our histories. Yeah, there's many fine Aboriginal intellects, and you know to come together and put forward the Uluru Statement that is an intelligent document. It's working in harmony with a lot of different um, Aboriginal nations. Um, in a way that's progressive and non-threatening and it just really needs the Australian government to come on board with a new um, way of coexisting with one another that currently doesn't take place in this country. And yeah, like, people are going nowhere. So at some time they do have to recognise us as legitimate people who have an intellect who can frame something like the Uluru Statement and work in harmony through the federal government. I'd like to see uh, seats, designated seats in the Senate, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flag flying in the Senate as well, um, just to carry over from that week. But, um, yeah, designated seats in the Senate. It wasn't part of what the Uluru Statement said, but it has the people involved in the statement and, and other positions around voice um, have been in that, you know, supportive of that idea itself as well. Um, look, just to get back to the uh, the idea of colonisation and these benign words that they put to it or the experiences of, of dispersal, um, Nathan, you uh, have you've, uh, done exchange, uh, whether through uni or high school or whatever, with First Nations abroad. Um, we spoke about this the other day when we were talking on the ABC, but um, after we finished talking, I just wanted to sort of, I regretted not sort of exploring that a bit further. Um, firstly, were these experiences, uh, you know, the similar that, that happened with the yeah. First Nations groups that you spent time with? Yeah, so I think that's the main thing that, you know, from that experience, it was a uni exchange um, at University of Toronto. And I think that was the main thing that I still remember today is just the feeling of um, very similar, if not the same, like experience of, you know, just as we were talking about, like um, just our very existence being taboo or being something that, um, you know, our countries and our governments refuse to acknowledge time and time again. Um, yeah, and I think that was something, you know, very like the whole concept of out of sight, out of mind, being on missions or being on reservations and, um, and you know, um, just the experience of, of um, Indigenous people over there um, in, a, in the big city environments too and the more in, in urban sort of, you know, quote-unquote urban environments. Um, yeah, very, very similar, um, yeah, across the board. Do those perspectives from the other side of the world contribute to the way that you went about your work 
know, once you got going down that road? Yeah. Well, I think like, um, you know, North America in general being the birthplace of hip hop and being, you know, the, you know, the birthplace of the art form that I really, you know, love and fell in love with. Um, coming back to Australia just really filled me with, um, you know, a lot more motivation and drive to actually pursue music. And, and also to, you know, the stories that I heard over there and just meeting different mob, you know, like I think just really inspired me to share my story and to really sort of start to try and put that together within like, you know, over a bit of three minutes of a beat, you know. Um, and that's the thing I love about hip hop. And that's the thing that's always been inspiring from over there is just the ability to, to just, not have a filter or be uncensored and, and say how it is for no one to interrupt or no one to silence you, you know, they can listen to it or they can't, but you know, I can say whatever I want in that three minutes. Yeah. Was your work always the, the work that I've heard um, mm. going from, I think 2016 with the black lives matter track yep. uh, that you brought out. That was part of the first album, the deb- uh, debut album. Prior to that, was your work always, uh, you know, had that really strong political point or bent to it? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's always been there. Um, you know, I started writing um, and started, you know, again, you know, coming back from Canada and um, actually around the time that I became really tight with Fred and, you know, reconnecting with family and, and so, like, my music, I think, is really spawned from and really still inspired by sharing my family's story. That's always the, the core of it. And, you know, in particular, my father's experience being in and out of the system and, you know, growing up under the act and, um, and, and just how that's kind of, you know, influenced, um, the future generations and my generations and, and it's, I think if you look back at my work, you can kind of see that, I guess, evolution for lack of a better word, like from, from when I first started and really sort of, you know, tapping into my family story. And now it's sort of moving on to me being a father and, and the knowledge that I'm sort of learning and the responsibility as a, a young father now to sort of, you know, pass that on to my son and, and just really thinking about legacy and, and, and culture and, yeah, that sort of thing. Was Bagu Abagan the first time you'd oh. written about country? I think, like, that's probably the most direct, yeah, like, yeah, directly inspired song, definitely. And because Fred's a part of that and he's singing a bachelor and, yeah, it's, it's pretty much, yeah, the most direct. I think I've had, like, sort of little, um, you know, splices here and there that have weaved themselves in and out of my music previously but that's the yeah definitely for this song the main focusing yeah one experience that i've always been intrigued by um i was privileged enough to grow up on country and really took that for granted for a long long time um but working for Indigenous X, I came to realise that a lot of young or younger people um, just haven't had the opportunity to do that for whatever reason it might be. Um, when you were growing up at the NT or even when you were on these exchange 
programs overseas. What, and this is a classic journalist sort of question, how did you feel, you know, um, <laughs> wanting, well, knowing, you know, much of it your country, but not having the opportunity mm. to to have that, I guess, that formative years of, of you know, childhood yeah. on country? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's something that I still think about and um, definitely, you know, coming of age in the Territory, I think there was a big turning point um, as a teenager that I really just wanted to, I wanted to get out of the Territory and go back to where all my, you know, my cousins and my aunties and my family were. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's always been, a, I guess, a bit of a tough thing because my parents actually left Queensland um you know, due to, um, I guess, the experiences with racism and the, inter, you know, internal family conflicts between, you know, my mother being white Australian and my dad being bachelor. And so, um, you know, that was pretty hectic, pretty intense, I think. And so they, you know, moved to the Territory, I guess, in the search for a better life, um, you know. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, I, I really cherished my years growing up in the Territory, but you know, the racism there in Catherine was still, <laughs> there wasn't a, any escaping, you know, it was pretty much the same thing or, you know, um, yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, yeah. And so I think like my music, just to get back to that, I think is just, it's always been about that journey, um, you know, back to family and, 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 and country for me. Yeah. And still very much today. And I think like I was saying, it's moving more in towards me thinking about, um, my son now, yeah. And Fiona, just to get back to you, you, like me, grew up on country, um, had a close connection both, you know, under your feet but also really strong familial connection. Um, what was that like, you know, realize, how important was that to your work process is where I'm trying to get to Oh, it was impressed upon me from a very early age um, to be proud of my culture. And so I had a mother who um, was um, a community leader in a lot of ways and she was the first person to get land back on Fraser Island under the Joe Bialke-Peterson government. It was a 20-year lease and that was a 20-year fight. So I watched her um, be a politician in her own right and fight for that land and she never gave up so she had this very tenacious streak and I think watching that I've also um, have that in my nature as well so there are important things that need to be done on country and since our con consent determination in 2014 we've had two native title claims one on the island one on the mainland and I was actively involved um, in the first one for the island, and that was an 18-year process. So some of these things are really long battles that you have to fight. And during that process, the reward really is going back to country, you know, to, to the island, and just being in nature is really rewarding and uplifting to the spirit. And you can see that you have a legacy in that long history of, Butchler people um, fighting, you know. So we were taken off the island in 1904. It was 110 years before we were legally recognised again in 2014. And um, 
So growing up on the mainland, really, at Urangan, it was um, what I sort of term um, a deprivational longing for our country because we could see the island there, but we couldn't access it. So um, that would, has been a really, really long fight, and it's sort of um, happened towards the end um, of, that, of that fight in my lifetime. So I think um, we're a proud people. We put up a 20-year resistance against colonisation in Maraburrah and I just see us as um, a warrior people and I just uh, feel that that's my inner spirit. So, you know, my name on Facebook means um, it's a bachelor word but it means phantom spear point and I just think we're a tenacious people and uh, we have a lot to be proud of and and sing about Nathan and so I applaud you mm. the work that you're doing even though you didn't grow up on country I've seen your father at a number of native title meetings in Harvey Bay and yeah. I know who you are um, through your father's um, you know uh, lineage and, and clan and uh, so I just think you take up the fight in different ways and song is equally as important. Oh, thanks, Anna. yeah. Well, thank you both for joining me for this 20-something episode of the Take It Black podcast. Uh, you can get the Fiona's new book, uh, or latest book, uh, Biting the Clouds, um, UQP have published it, so it's probably in all good bookstores, etc. Uh, and Nathan, people can buy your album at all good records shops, I'd imagine. Yeah, <laughs> I remember. Yeah, like yeah, go stream it. The ABC thing the other day I went. Oh yeah, go and listen to the you know, stream the song for whatever. And afterwards, I was thinking, oh no, I've forgotten to point people to go and actually <laughs> buy the <laughs> album. So. Um, or the, the single. So, uh, yeah, make sure you do that uh, as well as listening to it um, on the, your favourite streaming ser uh, service. Speaking of favourite streaming services, you can subscribe to Take It Black on whatever podcast, Spotify, Apple Podcast. There's probably three or four more. And give us a like on Twitter and you can join in the conversation there with hashtag Take It Black. But until our next episode comes along, just remember to always take it black. Always love, always love